0: Morning. Morning. morning! Welcome to Woodside Community Church. I am very excited to be back with you today. Uh, we had a wonderful time in North Carolina, getting a little break. Uh, I tried to get out on the beach to get a little sun, so I would no longer be the whitest guy in Queens. Um, so, I got a little bit of sun, so that's a good thing. Um, but we're very excited to be back. We missed you guys. It was good to see our, our family down there, but glad to be back up here with our family um, here with you. Thank you to Vijay for, for covering for me. He, you know, did an alright job, right? And, Did not get anything too wrong? Okay, that's good. Um, But we're just going to jump back in. We're going to continue where we left off. We're going to be back in Mark 3. Uh, We're going to be in verses 7 through 19 this morning. Mark 3, 7 through 19. We have an interesting passage today. The first half is basically just a little summary of Jesus' ministry to this point. Pretty much everything we've been talking about kind of in these first few verses. And then the second half is basically just a list of His 12 disciples. When I first read through the passage, I was kind of tempted to think, ah, you know, this is mostly kind of summary material. Maybe we should just kind of skip this and get to the really interesting kind of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit stuff um, in the next passage. People are really interested um, by, by that question. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? So let's just get to that. But there's some really important stuff here that I think it would be good for us to cover. As I studied it and, and read it more, um, I really found that there was actually a lot contained in these, these few short verses. So we're going to do three things this morning. First, we're going to look at the fans of Jesus in verses 7 through 12, then we're going to look at the followers of Jesus in verses 13 through 19, and then we're going to finish up by looking at kind of the difference between the two groups and then drawing a a few conclusions about following Jesus, which is basically just discipleship. So Mark 3, verses 7 through 19, you can find it printed there inside your bulletin. This is God's Word. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and, might, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that every word of it is inspired. Uh, You specifically um, preserved these words so that we could learn about you and about your son uh, through them. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come together and and to worship you through song and then to worship you um, through the study and then proclamation of your word. So, Father, right now I pray that you would focus our minds and our hearts on the text. Focus us on Jesus and what you want us to learn um, this morning. Father, move me aside and I pray that you would speak and that you would work in this place and that you would get all the glory. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our passage opens. Remember, we've had, we just had five encounters of, of conflict with Jesus and the religious leaders. So Jesus, he's trying to get away. He's trying to get a little bit of vacation for himself. So he tries to take his disciples. He tries to get out, but the crowds follow. And they come from everywhere. They come from Jerusalem. we're told that's where they came from for John the Baptist. But for Jesus, they also come from Idumea, which is over 120 miles south of here. And then they come from Tyre and Sidon which is over 50 miles to the north. And this is quite the range in an age without cars or cell phones or anything quick whatsoever. This is the peak right here of Jesus' popularity. This is where Jesus is at his biggest. Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus, and the crowds are pressing in and surrounding him. Now, crowds, if you read Mark, you'll, you'll start to notice that crowds play a very important role in this book. Mark uses two different words that both translate as crowd. And he uses them 52 times in just these 16 short chapters. 40 of those times come in the first nine chapters. So we have a lot of interaction between Jesus and the crowds. They, they form kind of the audience for Jesus' teaching. And they are sometimes the object of his compassion. But Mark never once describes the crowds as repenting or believing or following Jesus as he had called them to do. In respect to kind of understanding Jesus, in respect to faith and following, crowds in Mark generally demonstrate kind of passivity and lukewarmness and fickleness. Actually, the one attribute that is most common to the crowds that you'll find if you read Mark is that they're constantly obstructing access to Jesus. They're always getting in the way of other people getting to Jesus. So he is hugely popular, and this is the peak of it, but... As you'll see in Mark, crowds are never the measure of success when it comes to Jesus. The crowds are generally characterized as the outsiders. They were either kind of undecided or they were sometimes even opposed to Jesus. And this is why we'll see in a few weeks in Mark 4, Jesus says this. He says that he speaks to them in parables. In Mark 4, 33 and 34, Jesus says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples he explained everything. He speaks in parables to the crowds. But he clearly explains everything to the disciples. The people in the crowds were fans of Jesus. They weren't really followers of Jesus. They were fans of Jesus. Well how do we know that? We know that from kind of a number of different ways. First just look at their behavior. Right, they're acting like crazed people. Fans. They're acting like 12-year-old girls at a Justin Bieber concert, right? They're all crowding around and pressing in and trying to just, just touch the hem of Justin Bieber's shirt or something, right? This is how fans react. This is not how followers act. Plus, Jesus tells us in John 4, 48, that many people were after him just because of what he could do for them. He said, unless you see signs and wonders, unless you get what you want from me, you will not believe. In John 8, 46, he criticizes the crowd for seeking him simply because he could feed them. They weren't interested in Jesus himself. They were interested in what they could get from Jesus. They were basically treating Jesus as a magic kind of genie in a lamp that they would rub. Jesus would come out, all right, I need this Jesus. All right, all right, good. And then they'd kind of go off on their own way. Yesterday, I was trying to get back home. And I was getting extremely frustrated. I got delayed three times in a row in the Charlotte airport. I was texting BJ. I was like, I'm not going to get back. I don't know what's going to happen. But as I was sitting there continually getting delayed and frustrated, I noticed a guy sitting across from me. This guy's name is John Sally. Now, I don't expect any of you to know who he is, maybe a couple. But that's kind of the point I want to make. John Sally is a giant of a man. He's about 6'11", big guy. He's actually from Brooklyn. Um, and he played um, basketball down at in, in Georgia Tech and then was drafted in the NBA and was actually the first person ever to win three different championships with three different teams. All right? He won with the, the Lakers and the Bulls and the Pistons. All right? So he was a pretty decent basketball player, but the point is that he was actually a very average basketball player. He wasn't ever the star. He was always the guy coming off the bench. He was always kind of the role player, pitching in a few points here and there, but he was never the Guy. Alright, so the point is that he was a very minor celebrity. He's probably most known for this talk show that he hosted for a number of years on, on Fox Sports that he got pretty famous for. So I'm here, sitting here, watching this guy for about an hour, John Sally, a very minor celebrity. Keep in mind, and it was fascinating to watch people around this minor celebrity crowds were gathered around John Sally. So much that it was obstructing kind of the hallway, the access to get to the other different gates. He had this big crowd. One lady was kind of jumping up and down and screaming. She was so excited to meet John Sally. People were going up to him and grabbing his hand and, and getting his autograph and kind of sneaking in for pictures. And these people were fans of John Sally. Everybody wanted a piece of John Sally. But what were they doing? They would get what they wanted from him. They'd get the autograph. They'd get a picture with them. And then they would just walk off. Right? They weren't particularly interested in John Sally at all. They definitely weren't interested in being a follower of John Sally at all. They didn't even know anything about him. I bet. I bet they didn't even know that he's this a big advocate of veganism. Do you know what veganism is? It's like super vegetarianism. Right? You can't have anything to do with animals. No milk no eggs, nothing to do with animals. And he's always kind of out there now. He's this big face of kind of veganism, always preaching it and proclaiming how important it is that we don't eat or have anything to do with animals. But these people didn't know that. They didn't care about that. If John Sally had come in and died, like, hey guys, I want you to be my follower. You need to practice veganism. They would all laugh at him and, and walked off and wouldn't have cared at all. They weren't interested in John Sally himself. They were interested in what they could get from John Sally, they wanted an autograph. They wanted a picture that they could put on Facebook and be like, "Hey, you guys, look, I was with a celebrity." Right? Our obsession with celebrities is generally selfishly motivated. Right? We want something. We want to know them or have a picture. We want to be able to tell people that we kind of know this celebrity. Right? They weren't interested in John Sally. They didn't even know who he was. You could see people on their phones like looking him up. Like, I know this is somebody, but I'm gonna figure out who it is. And then they'd run up and get their picture with him. That is how fans act. And that is how these crowds, these people, were acting around Jesus. They weren't interested in Jesus himself. They were interested in the craze of Jesus. They were interested in what they could get from Jesus. I'm going to get healed, and I'm going to get out of here. That is the crowds in Mark. And notice that we have a massive crowd here. Remember, we're at the height of Jesus' popularity. We're talking thousands of people probably. Later on, he'll he'll feed 5,000 people. And that 5,000 is just the men. So we maybe have like fifteen or 20,000 people total that Jesus is feeding. Then he feeds 4,000 just men. So we've got another twelve or 15,000 men and women that Jesus is feeding there. We're talking about tens of thousands of people over the course of Jesus' ministry. That seems pretty impressive, doesn't it? But in Acts 1.15, at the very end, right before Jesus leaves, we're told, right after Jesus left, actually, we're told that there were 120 people. That's it. 120 followers after three years of ministry, in numerous healings, one-of-a-kind, authoritative teaching, surging wild crowds of thousands of people chasing after Jesus. When we get down to it, we're left with 120 followers. Why? What is going on here? And that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. What's the difference between the two groups and our passage this morning? What's the difference between the crowds in the first part of our passage and the apostles, the disciples, in the second? What's the difference between fans and followers? So let's turn to the followers now that we've kind of looked a little bit at the fans. Let's draw out a few things um, from the text, what it means to be a disciple, and then we'll kind of look at the differences between the two Groups. So look there at verse 13 first. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And Jesus makes this explicitly clear to the apostles in John fifteen sixteen. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit. So this then is the absolutely first necessary step of discipleship. Without this one, nothing else we're going to talk about is possible. Notice what's going on. Jesus is the one that does the choosing. He calls whom he desires to be his disciples. And we've seen that already with the five men who have already been called and chosen by Jesus. He goes to Simon and Andrew and James and John and Levi. And Jesus comes to them and he calls them. They don't just kind of like this Jesus guy a little bit. They're not just kind of, oh, you know, I'm going to check this out. Oh, you know what, I'm going to start following you. No. He takes the initiative. Jesus shows up and goes to them and calls them. They're just living their lives, right? They're in the middle of fishing on their boats. Levi is sitting at his tax booth doing his thing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and he changes their entire lives. Jesus is the one that does the calling of his followers. And this is the pattern that you'll find over and over again throughout the Bible. We kind of like to think of ourselves as these like really smart people spiritual seekers like we're checking things out like all right this was interesting this is interesting i'm going to check this one okay all right jesus you know what i choose you jesus you're the one i'm going to go with you no but but that's not how it works in the bible just take paul as an example what was paul doing he was actively persecuting the church he had just had stephen killed the first martyr in the church And now Paul is off on the road, he's heading to Damascus, and he's going to get more people. And he's probably going to kill more people. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't trying to decide to follow Jesus. He hated Jesus. But what happens? Jesus shows up there in the middle of the road to Damascus, and he calls Paul. He says that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And we see this practically with every individual in the Bible. Abraham's off just kind of doing his thing far away Ur, in another country. God shows up and he calls Abraham and changes his life and changes the course of history after that. He does the same thing with Moses. David is off in the field and God goes and calls him. He does it with the prophets over and over again. God chooses whom he desires to be his followers. And Jesus makes this very clear in John 6, in a number of kind of different places. He says that all whom the Father gives him will come to him. He says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. He says no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So this then is the first and most basic mark of a disciple or a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus is one who has obeyed God's call to follow Jesus. Then flip over next to verse 14. We're told that Jesus specifically appoints 12 to be his apostles. We can all be disciples of Jesus, but we can't all be kind of big A apostles. Apostles just meant sent one. And in a way, we're all sent. But in the New Testament, when it uses the word apostle, it's generally referring to these 12 men specifically. And then we're told what specifically they were appointed for. Three things. That they might be with him that they might be sent out to preach, and that they would have authority to cast out demons. And I think this is a good summary of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. First you must be called, and then you have these three things that once called disciples are appointed to do. So three parts to being a disciple. Being a disciple is relational, it is verbal, and it is behavioral. Relational, verbal, behavioral. First, it is relational. It says that he appointed the twelve that they might be with him. The crowds weren't with Jesus. They were just kind of an ever-rotating, ever-changing mass of people getting what they wanted and moving on. Getting what they wanted and moving on. But discipleship, Christianity, is relational. It's not about God out there kind of at arm's length giving us some rules to follow. It's about knowing him and loving him and being with him. Jesus is called Emmanuel. What does that mean? It simply means God with us. And the 12's time with Jesus is instructive for all of us. They were always with Him, always learning from Him, always listening to Him and imitating Him. It's not about a list of rules to keep. It's about a relationship. Second, being a disciple is verbal. Jesus appointed the 12 that He might send them out to preach. Now, we're not all called to quit our jobs and become pastors of churches. We're not all called to vocationally be preachers, but we are, every one of us, called to preach. We are all called to some sort of ministry of the Word. Now, for most of us, that will primarily involve kind of loving and and sharing the gospel with our friends and our family and our co-workers. Those people that God has specifically brought into our sphere of influence. Now, you don't have to beat people over the head. You don't have to give them a tract and explain to them the entire story of the Bible every time you meet them. But we talk about the things that we love. We talk about the things that we love. I know that BJ loves Ron Paul because he always talks about Ron Paul, right? If you spend any time with me, you're going to find out that I love sports because I am always talking about sports, particularly Carolina basketball. I talk about it a lot. Right? The amount of times we talk about things is, uh, d- demonstrates how much we love them. I talk about Melissa and Emma all the time because they're a lot better than I am, and I want people to know that, that they're with me and that I get some of the credit kind of for some of that maybe. Right? I talk about the things that I love, so I'm always talking about them. Then, if if it is necessarily true that we always talk about the things that we love, and it is. I can spend an hour or two with you and pretty quickly start to figure out what you are really interested in and what you love. We talk about the things that we love. Then how can we not at least, to some degree, a little bit, talk about the absolute best thing that has ever happened to us? If this whole thing is true, if this whole Jesus deal is really true... If you were actually dead in your sins, if you were well on your way to spending eternity in hell, and if there was nothing you could do about it, but Jesus showed up and saved you, brought you back to life, restored you, reconciled you to God, and gave you eternity in heaven, how could you not at least a little bit want to talk about that? Discipleship is always verbal. Have you ever heard the saying people always say now, it's cool these days, like, uh, preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. That's stupid. Right? That doesn't make any sense. The gospel is good news. It is words. Right? The gospel is verbal. It is a message. It is something that we are to share and proclaim and tell people. Yes, live lives that adorn that the gospel. Be obedient to Christ. That's very good and important. But that's not the gospel. Right? The gospel is necessarily verbal. Right? We have to be sharing the gospel if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So, relational, verbal, and finally, discipleship is behavioral. We're going to spend a lot of time on this one in a second, so I'll just briefly mention it here. Jesus calls and appoints the twelve, and he says to, for them to cast out demons in verse 15. But in, in, Mar- in Matthew 10.1, in kind of this same parallel passage, we're also told that he gave them the authority to heal as well. So what do we have here? Well, we have the three exact things that Jesus himself had been doing. Preaching, healing, and casting out demons. The apostles were called to do the exact same things that Jesus were doing. They were called to imitate their Lord. And we are as well. If we are going to be his disciples, we must imitate Jesus. Now, listen, we're no longer called to go around trying to cast out demons um, i got a bad ankle, and once I, once I sprained it badly, it's coming. I don't expect you to come up and lay your hands on it and try to heal my ankle. No, the, the specific actions are not the point. The actions serve to demonstrate that the king had come. All right, the actions pointed to Jesus. The actions showed that the kingdom that Jesus brought was breaking in, that things were starting to change. The actions pointed to Jesus. So the main idea to take away here is that the apostles were imitating and obeying their Lord. And we must as well. So discipleship is always behavioral, relational, verbal, and behavioral. That's basically discipleship. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time kind of drawing a few conclusions from these two different groups and kind of seeing what some of the maybe the the major differences are between them. We've got the apostles and we've got the crowds. Remember, and this is important, Crowds are not a measure of success in Mark. And as tempting as it may be, and I'm going to need your help with this as well, we cannot allow crowds to become our measure of success here at Woodside. Now, numbers are great. People are important. We want people to hear the gospel, and that can't happen if they aren't here. So we want this place to swell and explode. We want to not fit in this building. We want lots of people in this place. That is not a bad thing to desire. But we cannot measure our success by the amount of people coming here. Jesus never measured success by numbers. And we cannot either. Based on kind of modern day church growth models Jesus would have been an absolute failure. All right? Three years of 24 hour ministry and 120 followers. Right? Jesus was not concerned with numbers. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's not that difficult to draw a crowd. You just have to say some things that people want to hear. You dress really cool. You, you spike up your hair. You have a big band with loud music and big flashing kind of lights going on. My brother, he's a pastor down in Charlotte. And there's a church just down the street from him, a big church. But literally, when you walk in for every service at the door... You have, you have your ushers, and they're handing you bulletins, but they're also handing you earplugs. Because it's so loud in that place that they give you earplugs so that your ears aren't harmed. So we need some extra ushers. We need to get Jerry back there with, with some earplugs, kind of handing those out for our loud piano play. But, but the point is that all you have to do is have really cool video clips and really cool sermon series titles. And you always preach through series on sex and relationship. And people love that stuff. It is not that difficult to draw a crowd. And if you don't believe me, just go and Google kind of the list of the largest churches in America. And I'll tell you honestly, some of these guys simply are not preaching the gospel. Take the largest church in America, for example. 43,000 people in one church. 43,000 people. Now that is a crowd. What church is that? That is actually Joel Osteen's church. Joel Osteen's church. And this is what he says in maybe his most popular book. He says, it's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. It's God's will for you to pay your bills and not be in debt. It's God's will for you to live in health and not in sickness all the days of your life. But that is a lie. And that is not coming From the Bible. If that is God's will for your life, then apparently the apostles were out of the will of God. Because their lives were marked by suffering and pain and difficulty and death. Alright? That's how the disciples' lives went. It's, It's not hard to draw a crowd. All I have to do is look really, get some cool hair and some big teeth and just tell you things that you want to hear. Tell you that if you just come here, you'll be rich and happy and healthy. You just come to church. That's what builds a crowd. But we cannot allow our desire for a crowd, we cannot allow the number of people in this place to become our measure of success. Jesus never tells us to go and make a crowd, he says to go and make disciples. And that has to be our measure of success. Are we making disciples? Are we producing people who repent? believe, and follow Jesus? Are we producing spiritually mature, devoted, serving Christians? That has to be our concern. Listen, I'm the first one to admit that I want us to grow bigger numerically. Very much so. But, more importantly, I want us to grow bigger spiritually. To mature in our Christian lives. And we cannot do that by never talking about sin and telling people um, what they want to hear. We can only do that by preaching the gospel and emphasizing the love and the mercy and the beauty of Jesus Christ. We do not want to produce fans. We want to produce followers, disciples. Which are we doing? Which of you? Are you a fan or are you a follower of Jesus? And this is an eternally important question because Jesus is pretty clear that the fans don't make the cut. Fans will be the ones coming to Jesus in Matthew seven twenty two and 23. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Fans are those he describes in the previous verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Who does the will of God? The followers. And we've already talked about this for multiple weeks, but it is so important. This is the behavioral part of the discipleship. Jesus doesn't want your mild interest. He wants your obedience. He wants your life. Remember, we said a couple weeks ago that there was no such thing back at the time of Jesus of uh, there being a follower of a Jewish rabbi who didn't do what that rabbi did. That's what being a follower is. It's doing what the one you're following does. And that was one of our first messages. Jesus doesn't say, Believe some things about me. He says, Repent, believe, and follow me. Now the the following, the obedience, it does not save us. I've said it a thousand times before. You cannot be good enough. You can't do the right things. You can't keep all the rules. You cannot save yourself. But... When God gets a hold of someone's heart, when He actually brings their sinful, dead heart back to life, obedience and good works always follow to some degree. They are not the cause of salvation. They are the result of salvation. But if there has been no repentance, if there has been no obedience, if there is no following whatsoever, then you demonstrate that there has been no salvation. You're just a fan. And fans are not actually on the team. Don't believe me. Believe Jesus. Luke 6.46 Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? If you still don't believe me, go tonight and just kind of meditate on John 14 and 15. It's all over the place in John 14 and 15. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If these verses don't get you thinking, then nothing will. He says that by bearing fruit, we prove to be his disciples. So it stands to reason in that if we are not bearing fruit, then we are not his disciples. Listen, I am not saying that we have to be perfect. Far, far from it. Just go talk to Melissa if you ever want to know how not perfect and how sinful I am. That is not what I'm saying. We are never promised that we will be perfect in this life. We are told very clearly that we will continue to struggle and wrestle with sin as long as we live. But real grace, a real encounter with Jesus Christ always changes someone. There is always some sort of of progression no matter how small or how slow it might be you can always look back and see some sort of growth in your life man look at what i was like before jesus christ followers are not those who never sin no they are those that who when they sin and they will they repent by god's grace from that sin and so we must be constantly repenting because we are constantly sinning But there must be some sort of sign of life. There must be some change. There should be minor victories here and there over sin. There should be development or progression. There's got to be something. So I want us to be followers. I want us to get off the sideline and quit being fans and get in the game. And that is exactly what we see with these disciples. These men literally followed Jesus and most of them would die as a result of it. Peter. We can easily identify with Peter, right? Aren't you so glad that Peter is in the Bible? Peter is such a screw-up, right? It encourages me. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's always messing up. He's always sinning and making mistakes. But God uses him mightily, right? If if God can use Peter, there's, there's hope kind of for someone like me. But what about Peter? What are we told about Peter in tradition? Tradition says that Peter was forced to sit for hours and watch his wife be crucified. And then after that, he himself was crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy to be cruci- to be martyred in the same way that his Lord and Savior was. Andrew, Peter's brother, he was apparently crucified on an X-shaped cross, and with his last breaths, he was encouraging people to trust in Christ. In Acts 12, we're told that James was killed by the sword by King Herod. Philip, a missionary, he was martyred right after James. Levi, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, a tax collector. Tradition says that he was burnt alive at the stake. Thomas, doubting Thomas, says that he was thrust through with a spear. Simon the Zealot. we're told that he was also killed for his faith. Judas, the son of James, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Jews, who is sometimes also called Thaddeus. And Thaddeus, if you really break the word down, it basically means mama's voice. That's really what the word translates. We don't know anything about Thaddeus except that apparently he was a mama's boy. Except when it came to his faith. Because he was clubbed alive. He was, he was alive and he was clubbed to death. And John actually maybe kind of had it the easiest. But actually, they actually tried to boil John alive. But he somehow survived. And so they exiled him to an island where he wrote the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and was the last apostle to die. That is the fate of of the apostles. That is the faith of Jesus' closest friends and his closest followers. Doesn't sound like a lot of health, wealth, and happiness, does it? Not at all. Does that intimidate you at least a little bit? Because it very much intimidates me. All of that sounds pretty hard. And it absolutely does. And this, I think, is one of the beautiful paradoxes of Christianity. What is a paradox? You have a paradox when you have two things that are both true, but that seem to contradict each other. You have two true things that seem like they contradict each other, like light. Light behaves as a wave and as a particle. We know that that's true, but we don't know how it works, because it seems like those two things could contradict each other. That's what a paradox is. And Christianity is both the easiest thing in the world, yet it is the most difficult thing in the world. Why? Well actually I think the Christian writer C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity, he explains this better than I can. It's it's long but it's worth reading. So kind of so pay attention here. I'm going to read you kind of these few words from C.S. Lewis. This is from his book Mere Christianity. He writes, "The Christian way is different. It is harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you." I have not come to torment your natural self, but I have come to kill it. I want, no half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self, all your desires, which you think were good, as well as those that you think were wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will become yours. It's both harder and easier than what we're all trying to do. You have noticed that Christ himself sometimes describes the Christian way as very hard and sometimes as very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it's like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp. Next minute he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he means both. And one can see just why both are true. The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing to do is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and desires and dreams to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time to be good enough. We are all trying to let our mind and our heart do their own thing. We are all centered on money or pleasure or sex or ambition, and hoping... And in spite of this, to behave well enough and to be good enough for God. And that is exactly what Christ warned us that you could not do. You see what he's saying. Let me explain that. That was a little long. Christianity is extremely difficult because it requires the death of our old self. It requires us giving up all of our rights and all of our demands and the way that we think the things, the way things should go and the things that we think that we deserve. It involves us completely Dying to ourselves. We may not have to physically die for our faith as most of the apostles did. Some of us may. But death is absolutely required for every follower of Jesus. The death to self. There is no following. Thus, there is no salvation without death. These men were not fans of Jesus, they were followers of of Jesus. They were disciples. The lives of these men prove that Jesus was not kidding when he said, take up your cross and follow me. And they did. And some of them did quite literally. Remember a few weeks ago, we mentioned the German guy who was, was killed by the Nazis in Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Remember the quote? He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And the name of the book that that comes from is called The Cost of Discipleship. And we have completely lost this concept in the American church today. We have cheapened discipleship and following Jesus. We've tried to make it as easy as possible. Just pray this prayer. Just walk this aisle. That's it. It is this truth that is one of the key differences between our two groups this morning. Death. And Bonhoeffer, he didn't make up this idea himself. It is all over the New Testament. Here are just a few places. Mark Mark 8.35 for whoever would save his life will lose it. John 12.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Romans 12.1 Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Galatians 5.24 And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 3.3 3, For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. Luke fourteen twenty six. if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Following Christ demands from us our very selves. It demands from us our lives. That's why it can be so accurately described as difficult. We are selfish people. There is nothing harder for us than to give up our rights and to lay down our desires and our dreams and to confess that maybe we're wrong and that maybe we're not actually good. There is nothing harder for sinful, selfish people like us than laying down our lives. It is almost impossible because of our sinful, self-centered nature. And that's why Christianity is so difficult. But that is not all that Lewis said As difficult as all of this is, it is infinitely easier than what we have all been trying to do, which is to be good enough to impress God and save ourselves. That actually is impossible. And that's what every other religion, that's what every other philosophy or way to live is going to teach you. Be good enough, keep these rules and do these things and God will reward you. God will save you. And Jesus says that is impossible. He says you cannot be good enough. This then is why Christianity is also so easy. Because it is the only way that actually works. It is so easy because it is the only way that does not require our work. It only requires the work of Jesus on the cross. He works, we rest. What could be easier than that? Can you imagine a job where someone takes the long train ride to work, for, works for about 12 hours and then takes the long train ride back, does it six days a week and then does it for a whole month and then comes to you and gives you their paycheck. He did all the work, you rested. That's basically what the gospel says. We failed so miserably, we are so sinful and so dead in our trespasses that try as we may, we cannot do it. You can be the next Mother Teresa and you will not be good enough for God. It's not about the rules you can keep. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Christ has done for you. It's grace. And it is the most beautiful, liberated thing in the entire world. And when this grace does its work on our hearts, when it changes us, it turns us from fans to followers. And that's what's so ironic about the whole thing. God's gift, free grace, should actually make us the hardest workers out there. We can now work so hard because we rest in Jesus Christ. We're no longer working to prove ourselves or to make a lot of money or to get what we want, to make our lives as comfortable as possible. We're no longer working to save ourselves. We are motivated by God's grace to start to work for the benefit of others. Grace changes our focus. We are all born completely inwardly focused. Before Christ, all I was thinking, every decision I made was, what can I do to benefit Matthew Shores? What is best for Matthew Shores? Then boom, grace, and our focus completely changes. Grace shifts our focus to Christ, the one who has done the work for us. It makes us less concerned with ourselves and more concerned with our Savior. And then he tells us, in turn, to go and be more concerned for others. He says, follow me. He says, become fishers of men. He says, go into the world and make disciples. Do what I did. Love people, serve people, preach the gospel to people. That's what Jesus did. So if you're going to claim to be a follower of Jesus, then those are the things that you have to do as well. Remember, a disciple is just a follower. And Jesus says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be saved and not follow Jesus. And ultimately, what did Jesus come to do? He came to die. So we cannot follow him without dying as well. Have you, have you taken up your cross? Have you died so that you might truly live? Or are you just a fan? Are you just semi-interested in Jesus in hopes that you can kind of get something from Him or because He makes you feel kind of a little bit better about yourself? Are you a fan or are you a follower? Are you in the crowd or are you a disciple? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we are so prone, we are so desirous to, to simply be fans. And we are so desired to run in and get a few things that we need and to run off. Father, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our apathy. Um, forgive me for how quickly I wander away and try to do my own thing. Father, I thank you that you are a God who forgives. But you are a God who forgives because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending us a perfect, holy substitute. to stand in our place and, and to take uh, the penalty that we deserved. Who died so that we could live. Father, I pray for this church that you would make this a place that that produces disciples. Father, we pray that you would bring people into this place. We pray that you would fill this building, but that that wouldn't be our focus, but that spiritual maturity, the discipleship, that that following you would be our focus. Father, I I thank you for this this opportunity and the blessing to, to come together and worship you and to study your word. I thank you for these truths, Father. But no matter how well I present them or how poorly I present them, Father, I have no ability whatsoever to to change someone's heart. I have no ability to, to save somebody. But Father, you do. And you promise that you will. We pray right now that your spirit would be working in all of us. Father, convict us of our sin. Convict us of those places in our lives where we do not follow you. Father, because we all have many. Father, lead us to repentance. Grant us repentance. Father, we pray for those in here who do not know you, Father, you would grant them repentance and faith. Father, bring dead hearts back to life for your glory. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name mm